Hello and welcome to Supers on Screen, the superhero movie podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Roth. My guests this week are Deadshirt.net contributing editor and master of fine arts, Christina Harrington. Hi. <laughs> and writer, blogger, and podcaster, Luke Herr. Yes, that is me. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about the 2004 feature film Hellboy, based on the Dark Horse comic by Mike Mignola. It's directed by Guillermo del Toro and stars Ron Perlman, Selma Blair, John Hurt, Doug Jones, and the voice of David Hyde Pierce. And Jeffrey Tambor. And Jeffrey Tambor! Yeah, yeah. And as a character, we will only ever refer to as Jeffrey Tambor. Yeah, because really his name is just uh, so forgettable. They must have told it, us his name at some point in the film, and we I forgot. I don't remember. Yeah, we need to look it up. It's we need to look it up. Jeffrey Tambor as FBI bigwig Tom Manning, a.k.a. Uh, George Bluth. Yeah. Yes. So Hellboy is a is a, a pretty interesting movie, and it came out in the in the sort of earlier um, pre Batman Begins, pre Marvel Studios superhero movie, uh, early half of superhero sure. movie boom. Uh, so, and also is based on a character that a lot of non major nerd folk were not super familiar with before the film came out. So I'm curious to see what each of you uh, had as an as your original Hellboy experience, because for me it was just this film. Um, but Christina, is this your first exposure before you got into the comics, or were you already reading Hellboy at this point? Um, actually, my first exposure to Hellboy is this movie. Um, for my 15th birthday, um, my parents threw me, like, a surprise party and, like, took me and, and seven people, and well, seven friends of mine, to, like, whatever movie I wanted to see, and I immediately was like, I want to see Hellboy. So we went and we saw it, and I, I, I like, really loved it. And um, I wasn't reading comics anymore in high school. I kind of stopped. But Hellboy was one of the first comics I got into again when I was when I started reading in college again. And so I still own some of the the trades because Hellboy's been collected into a bunch of trades, and they're they're you know they're affordable. So those were the ones I was I was buying when I was first getting back into comics. And I was like, I liked Hellboy the movie. I'd love to see, you know what this is all about and I, I just I absolutely love it. The art by Mike Magnola is just it's so incredible and he Hellboy himself is just so much fun. He's just this snarky punching asshole. I love him. He's so yeah, this is the first the first time I was ever exposed to the character was through this movie actually. How about you, Luke? Uh for me, like two thousand four was this really weird year where I had moved to Columbus or I've actually moved back to now and my dad was getting a lot more time to actually spend time with me, so we would go out and see movies. And so this was like the time period where Hellboy came out, Shaun of the Dead came out, and Constantine came out a year later. And so, like, I had no idea what Hellboy was, but my dad had heard good stuff about it. And I was at that weird pseudo-heavy Christian phase, which I've since gone out, and so I was like, no, this is a movie about bad stuff. It's going to be a slasher movie. And then I was pleasantly surprised and blown away by it. And then since then, I've uh, gotten into the comics first through Lobster Johnson and then through through Hellboy itself. For me, this was was it, and I really have honestly not really um, dove too far deeply into Hellboy in the comics universe. I guess as I'm just intimidated by how much there is. So for me, this is pretty much my only exposure to Hellboy. So it'll be interesting to to go through this with you guys, both being a bit more expert on the subject. So you guys both, like I like like myself, both really dug it right out of the gate, um, this film. Okay, in case any of you out there have not seen the film, and beware, we will be discussing spoilers right up to the end of the movie. Luke, do you want to give the audience at home an idea of what Hellboy is all about? Straight up, yo. 1994, off the coast of Scotland. Nazis under the command of Grigori Rasputin. I'm sorry, did you say 1994? 1944. Yes, 1994, the Nazis built a dimensional portal off of Scotland hoping to cause the end of the world and instead Hellboy was released and he was uh, brought into the world more or less and raised by he was uh, a baby. what would become yeah. the TRD in Trevor Bruton home. You flash forward to about 60 years later and Bruton home knows that he's getting old so he's looking for a successor so they brought in the top FBI agent 
Agent Myers, who nobody likes. Yeah, except by top for, agent, we mean top ranked in blandness. Yeah, just fresh out of the academy, super baby faced. Yeah, and and yeah, Doctor Brim's like that's the one. That's the one. Hire him. Who can I find who has the least personality to teach my <laughs> son how to be a man? We have a monster from another dimension who grew up from raised by scientists and apparently, at least to a degree, some some military folk raised to hunt and fight monsters for the U.S. government in secret. Yes, and that whole secret thing is one of the big differences from the comic. Also joining Hellboy is Abe Sapien, who is a aquatic fishman, depending on how you want to get into that. Because once again, it's different than the comics. And then Liz Sherman, who has uh, pyrokinetic abilities, which means she can make fire with her mind. And she's been more or less checked into a mental institution to try and give her some degree of control because she doesn't think that running out and fighting monsters with her powers is really the best thing for her to do. She's fighting from it. The, the, the power for her comes from her emotions, and so for her to be doing this, to be going out and fighting monsters or whatever, even though she's got really no control over her own emotional state or emotional well-being, seems really stupid to her, which I totally agree. And so she, you know, she went to get help, which is probably the smartest thing anybody in this movie does. <laughs> and Hellboy isn't really happy about that, which is part of the reason why Myers has been called in to sort of help him deal with his childish behavior. Yes. And... So the story really kicks in when Rasputin is resurrected after dying slash disappearing. Because if you don't really die and you can come back, I wouldn't really call that death. You don't sweat it much, really. And yes, this is the same Rasputin from actual history slash mythology. Yes. Anastasia, the movie. Yes. He's not voiced by Christopher Lloyd in that, actually. (laughs) Christopher Lloyd, unfortunately, does not appear in this film. The really interesting part about Rasputin in this movie is that he implies that every single time he dies, he brings a tiny bit of these creatures back, which sort of, it, it helps for this climactic end when Hellboy has to fight this giant god from beyond that has come through the very last time Rasputin dies, is able to burst out of him and, like, form itself right there. So every time he dies, he brings back a little bit, which is something, a detail that I missed I haven't seen this movie in in a really long time, but it was like the it was like a detail that I kept missing every time I watched it. I couldn't understand why this thing was in him, and then this time it finally came around that every time he dies, he sees these things and he takes back bits of it somehow. Lovecraftian ways. That makes a lot more sense, and that is something that is sort of easy to miss in the movie because yeah. otherwise, is suddenly tentacle monster. Yeah, he he refers to it very briefly that, like, I guess uh, because he was always into the dark magics, even, I guess, I suppose even in his first life, that he was able to reach out and touch this weird, dark place where Lovecraftian horrors dwell and and bring back just little pieces one at a time. It also makes sense, too, because um, the the whole mythology about Rescue, and even in our like, world, I guess, even in quote-unquote reality, was that he was, like, he was poisoned, and he was stabbed, and he was choked, and he was drowned, and so it implies that every single time that happened, he died, but then he came back, and so he's died and come back numerous times, and each time he's able to bring back these little pieces with him, this, this knowledge to figure out how to bring the rest in, the rest of these gods from beyond, which is what they were trying to do in that very first opening scene. They are really trying to bring these these monsters in, and somehow little tiny baby Hellboy slipped through. Because it turns out that Hellboy is the key to unlocking these horrific god creatures that look like giant squids. Yeah, the plot, which is the, his whole plot, basically. Yeah, The plot, as the protagonists know it, is they think they're just fighting a bunch of monsters. But we as the audience know pretty much from the get-go that it's all a setup that it's just a bunch of puzzle pieces being put together one by one so the heroes can think they're solving it, but in fact they're walking right into where they need to be for Rasputin to unlock the portal to the end of the world so that Hellboy can rule over a horrible post-apocalyptic Earth and uh, chaos rules, and it's bad. It's bad things you don't want to happen to your Earth. Yeah, usually. Meanwhile, Hellboy has some romantic-type feelings for pyrokinetic Liz Sherman, and there's a will-they-won't-they thing, um, extremely bland uh, 
babysitter agent John Myers is sort of trying to help them get hooked up, but Hellboy thinks that he's after 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 uh, Liz's affections himself, so there's some sort of manufactured tension there between the two of them, which works mostly because you don't like Myers. <laughs> Even yeah. however hard he tries for you to like him, he's he's such a whatever guy. And he's really... never given anything to do, ever. Yeah. And we don't learn anything about him that's particularly interesting, other than that he's an FBI agent. Oh, well, you know, he grew it. up with his uncle for a while. We overhear in a conversation. And that's that... it. That's literally <laughs> it. Yeah. He's pure There's... of heart. We trust that because Abe says so. Ugh. But ultimately, it comes down to a showdown in a wicked cool uh, mausoleum or cemetery in uh, in Russia where Hellboy has to reject his birthright of being a, a living evil god and... Rama. Yes. De- defeat Rasputin and uh, and win over the love of Liz Sherman. All after his, his uh, adopted father, or for all intents and purposes, is the person that raised him um, is, is murdered by one of Rasputin's creepy, creepy gang members. Ugh, ugh, so creepy. The guy yeah. with the blades and stuff. Fuck Cronin? Yeah. yeah. So, I hope that that was co- I hope that that was something that you guys could follow at home if we were uh, we're trying to summarize the bullet points. Hellboy, good monster, fights with a bunch of other freaks to defeat evil freaks. It is fun. It is a rollicking good time, and yeah, Hellboy always has a great one-liner. Always <laughs> consistently great one-liner. Well, then let's get back to let's get talk let's get to talking about Hellboy. I think one of the keys to why this movie is amazing is that Ron Perlman is the perfect Hellboy, even if you don't know the character from the comics, but apparently, especially if you know the character from the comics, this is the ultimate superhero casting, like, right up there with Robert with Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. I mean, it's just yes. spot on. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's, fa- it's uh, like, right to his voice. Like, his voice, it, it feels very Hellboy-ish to me, you know? That's why he's been the only person who's done Hellboy in like anything official. Yeah, even in the um, the animated uh, movies they did after the first film and before the second film, the entire cast came back and he he voiced Hellboy. That's right, right? Yes, except for Rupert Evans as Myers, because no okay. one cares about that guy. No, no, Myers does not matter. <laughs> the worst. Yeah. Hellboy is a fun character, is it seems like he's been, he's got the attitude of a younger dude, but he's been at this forever. He has been hunting demons and monsters for his, for so long that nothing surprises or phases him anymore at all. Yeah, yeah. and yet he still, he still acts fairly childishly, too, um, when he follows um, Myers and Liz on that pseudo date they have, and he throws the rock at Myers' head, and like, he does all these like different sort of childish things that... It, it, it kind of speaks that he hasn't really matured much, even though he's been around, even though he's very skilled at fighting these animals or these creatures or monsters or anything. He just, he isn't very good at being a person. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's one of those, like, interesting juxtapositions in his character where he's, like, good and evil, and then he's also, like, old as heck, and he can be really mature at times and just world-weary, and other times he does that so childish, and I think that's what makes him really interesting in the movie. He's complicated, yeah. Yeah. The rest of the cast rounds out really well, too. I think they did a really excellent job putting together the cast for this movie. Uh, Doug Jones, the famous mime actor playing the body of Abe Sapien with an uncredited voice of David Hyde Pierce, that's pretty solid. And then he ends up taking over the role in the animated series and the next movie? Yes, yes. Doug Jones ends up he ends up voicing and um, acting uh, Abe Sapien in the next film, and the voices are so similar. Like David Hyde Pierce's voice and Doug Jones's voice, they're they're similar enough where they sound they sound perfectly fine. Like it sounds like the same voice, really. It's almost yeah. weird that they bothered to dub over it, considering how similar they are. Very eerie. Yes, but they wanted to bring in the Fraser crowd. But they didn't even. I <laughs> that didn't niche realize group, that this. niche group. <laughs> David Hyde Pierce actually is not credited in the movie, so it's not as if they were using his star power anyway. Apparently, people can just pick it out. They just say, "Oh, hey, it's David Hyde Pierce." We have uh, Doctor Broom, uh, Hellboy's surrogate father, is played by John Hurt in a pretty, a pretty, uh, pretty subdued but but pretty solid turn. 
Uh, I think he was pretty excellent as the Obi-Wan of this movie. I wish there was more of him. You know, we don't really get... Even when he is on screen, he's sort of just a presence, which works. Like, it really works as sort of like this distinguished older man that's just in charge of this thing and knows that he has to give it up soon because he's dying. But I kind of... I really wish that there was more of him in the film. He feels very much almost a little wasted to me, I think. I'm sorry. His death sort of comes out of nowhere in... It's set up for, but it just feels like there should have been more of a connection with him. Yeah, he should have been on screen more when for the first half of the film. He still could have died. Like that still could have been one of the major, you know, turning points that could have been the major turning point for the film still, but they they really could have gotten more out of that character and more out of that actor. He's amazing, you know? The thing is, Doctor Broom, we're told as soon as we come to the present day, the way that we're introduced to him is when he's just gone through some medical tests and find out that he finds out that he's dying and he's keeping it a secret from Hellboy. So he's dying already, and then he gets murdered. So the dying, I guess, is a mechanism to explain why he's looking for a successor of sorts in Myers. But because he doesn't die of his disease, because he gets murdered by the awesome Carl Cronin, I guess it sort of doesn't matter that he was terminally ill in the first place. It doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, and even the whole plot of trying to find a successor doesn't really go anywhere because Myers doesn't do anything, and because we have Jeffrey Tambor's character. There are a number of better people for the job of keeping an eye on Hellboy after he dies. I mean, even if he assumes that Liz Sherman is never returning to the team after sequestering herself at at that psychiatric hospital, Abe is like an older brother figure for Hellboy. Um, there is Jeffrey Tambor's character, who I guess hates Hellboy at the beginning of the movie, so maybe he's not the most obvious choice. But there's Abe, there's Clay, the other agent who hangs out with Hellboy. Um, mm-hmm. there are, there are better people for the job than Captain Blandsman, who will only ever be a younger brother figure to Hellboy, because Hellboy is 80 years old, and Myers is 16. <laughs> okay, he's probably 25, but he is a baby-faced quote, pure of heart, end quote, empty suit of a character who exerts no nothing. authority. If Broom is looking for a new father figure for Hellboy, he could not have hit the, he could not have been farther from the mark. And that's why in the second movie you get a much better choice, but uh, that's second movie conversation talk. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. Sometime. He gets, what does he get, sent to Antarctica? <laughs> yeah, Hellboy's like, like I'm you know, sent to Antarctica. <laughs> In a one-off, in a one-off line, we find out the final fate of John Myers, and it's depressing. All right, we have Selma Blair as Liz Sherman. She actually doesn't show up until probably about a half hour into the movie. I think so. She's like hinted at before, but yeah, we see her on the screens. Uh, he's watching like a home video of her. In and when we get introduced to Hellboy, we actually see her face before we see his, which I think is really interesting when we're reintroduced to him as an adult through the lens of, like, following Myers into this situation and being introduced to the BPRD. We see her first, but we don't actually see or meet her character until after the first fight with Samael when Hellboy sneaks out on Halloween to to find her and talk to her and try to convince her to come back to the, uh, to the Bureau, which doesn't work. Liz is interesting because she doesn't really think i don't think like i think you were you were referencing this earlier christina that she doesn't really necessarily have much interest in doing the whole supernatural law enforcement thing she's more like i have these powers and i'd rather not use them and just do something else but this is apparently where i'm gonna end up because i burn down every other place i go yeah and this guy's kind of okay uh, like, I was talking about this when we were watching the movie, but uh, the, the first scene we get of um, Abe Sabian and, and Hellboy talking to each other, we're in there, they're in this back of this really cool, because everything's really cool because it's a Guillermo del Toro film, so everything's designed beautifully, um, but they're in the back of this, like, this, uh, this dump truck, and they're, like, headed to the museum where Samael's been sighted, and they're about to fight him, and it's Abe and Hellboy, and they're talking, and they're talking about how Hellboy hints that he'd rather have Liz there with him, and Abe's just sort of like, let it go. Like, you got it, she's made her choice. And I don't know, it it, it was really great, that moment, because it spoke to a, a shared history between the three of them, and that was something else I wish we had seen. We get, like, quiet scenes between, after Abe's been injured, Liz sits with him and talks to him, um, 
And but we never really see the three of them sort of like acting together as a group, which yeah. I would have really liked to see in this film, which we never do. We never actually see them fight together. The, the three of them are never in the same place at the same time. It seems like uh, Hellboy and Abe do the mission in the sewers without Liz. Hellboy and Liz do the mission in Russia without Abe. Um, it would shocked me. I couldn't. I for for some reason I kept thinking that we're gonna we're gonna get a break and Abe's gonna come back and he's gonna help fight at the end. And like I said, it's been a while since I I had seen this movie last. But he doesn't. He's not even in the final. He's not in the final like half hour of the movie or whatever. He's like out for the count after like the big fight with Samuel, which I yeah. was. I would yeah. Abe Sapien's one of my favorite characters, and so for him to and I've only like. My love for him has only grown ever since I've read the books and everything. So it was kind of disappointing for me to not see him in that last final conflict that for some reason I couldn't remember he wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, I was like, wasn't he there? Didn't he, like, swim down and uh, fight the monsters? But no, that's confusing with the earlier part where he does that, where he yeah. does get critically injured. And then, like, also with, like, one of the first Hellboy comics where he pretty much does the same thing. Yeah. He does that quite often. He gets injured quite often in the in the Hellboy comics. He'll still fight. He's tough as nails, and he'll still fight and like hold his ground. But it's usually Hellboy who has to finish things. The thing is, He's is the watching, the, watching the movie, it doesn't strike me as Abe is particularly tough at all. He actually does not take part in any of the violence. Not to say that one can't be strong without being violent, but in a movie where you're punching things, Abe doesn't actually do anything to demonstrate Punchable. that he's physically tough or physically intimidating he's mentally powerful he has psychic abilities he's a hell of a swimmer and obviously he's he's amazingly brilliant but he doesn't actually throw a punch or blow anything up or anything to that degree um hellboy is the only person in the movie of the of the good guys in the bprd who successfully manages to hit anything really um Liz. That's his job. And then Liz has her moment where she gets to do her cool fire starter thing and save the day. But other than but other than that, most of the team is is more or less the brains and the and like the character and Hellboy's the guy pretty much single who's single giant handedly doing the violence. Yeah, and the useless muscle, the the FBI agents that that are just fucking brutalized <laughs> they're just murdered ripped apart by monsters and hit by giant hammers and <laughs> it's funny that like the movie implies that hellboy has had a long-lasting relationship with a lot of these fbi guys and is really hurt when they die how did they make it this far how did they survive yeah. being in the bprd long enough for hellboy to get to know them because if this is what their life is like how every every weekend they just have another ropes course with everyone it's just yeah. like Join the team. Ropes course. Let's this, do <laughs> this should be like um, like Peter Milligan and Mike Allred's uh, X-Force, where everyone kind of expects that everybody they know on the team is going to die and nobody gets too attached because it really seems like how could you... They send these FBI guys out with pistols or on one occasion a giant gun that takes forever to charge that we never actually get to see used. But it's beautifully designed it's because Guillermo del Toro. It's a cool gun. We could talk more about why everything in this movie is amazing looking in a bit, but it does it does seem as if nobody is um, nobody is really useful in a scrap other than Hellboy and Liz. And even Liz doesn't have the ability to trigger those. She shows him in the beginning that she's beginning to control it, but that's literally the only time we ever see her control her powers. Beyond that, yeah. everything else is linked to an emotional charge. You know, she has to ask Myers to slap her in order to jumpstart the flames that she's able to, you know, wipe out these various semi-L creatures in order to save Hellboy towards the end of the film. But she she never really has control over anything that's happening. She sort of just goes along with things. Myers asks her to come back to the Bureau after she kills a whole bunch of people because... Who, how does that end up happening again? Rasputin breaks in at night and go. makes her go cray-cray. Yes, and so she kills, like, in her sleep, basically. She sets off this huge fire that sort of spreads and wipes out everybody else, assumedly, in yeah. the Influence. in the mental institution she's in. Because everything's burnt to the ground, yeah, basically. How would it, no one was going to survive that. Apparently her yeah. doctor made it out okay, and they said, I think there might have been a throwaway line where they're like, no one was hurt, but we lost a lot of our medicine. Bullshit. Everyone died. Everyone died in that explosion. Yeah, it, it, I'm like... The hospital for the 
criminally inflammable. The, yeah. the hospital for the criminally British in Newark, New Jersey, apparently. <laughs> Everybody we meet and we hear, we hear the voice of one doctor and one patient. This hospital is either on the Jersey or, or New York side of the Hudson, and both of those people are British. What are the fucking odds? Yeah. It just yes. it frustrates me because Liz has such great potential, and because there's only two named women really in the film besides uh, Liz's doctor, who we we really only see she only has like three or four lines to Myers. But um, it's Liz, and then I think her name is Elsa. She's like Rasputin's girlfriend, yeah. Ilsa Hapstein, played Ilsa. by Biddy Hodson, who does who not is very like, much in the movie at all. But she's like totally badass. She stabs that that guy that led them into the mountains in the back, and like leads to Rasputin coming back to life, and. She hits Myers in the head with a sledgehammer like a couple of times, which I was all about. Um, but we, we like really don't. She doesn't do anything beyond that, except be in love with Rasputin and then get crushed by a giant tentacle along with Rasputin. And then we have Liz, who uh, is a really complicated character in that she knows that her powers are linked to her emotions, and she doesn't like that. She wants yeah. to fix it, but she's not being allowed to fix it. She's being asked to come back into this world that she's denied. So she does come back because she loved Dr. Broom, or whatever the heck his name is. I can't even remember. That's correct. Broom, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, she loves him, and so she comes back to, like, help them out. And then he dies while she's on a date with Myers, and so she couldn't help that at all. And she continues to stay there, and she says, I'm going to Russia, and that's it, and then I'm done. She goes to Russia. She has Myers slap her across the face so she can wipe out all these things. It knocks her out. Rasputin steals her soul and, like, uses her as bait. And her for... clothes, apparently. And her clothes. He undresses her and puts this really, like, it makes for a really cool visual, but also ah, creepy. Um, and then, you know, Hellboy basically threatens... I guess heaven or hell that he'll come over and start beating him up unless they give her back, and that, like that's really cool. I think that's awesome. But also, you know, everything that Myers says to Hellboy in that ending piece where he's sort of like he's given himself over completely and he's unlocking the doors and he's that full demon presence that you know he, he didn't really have to be. Myers is like, remember who you are. Your father gave you a choice. You know, all yeah. that stuff. It would have sounded so much. It would have been more effective to me as an audience member if that came from Liz. If Liz was like, remember what your father gave you. Like, he gave you a choice. You know, you don't have to do this. Could Rather than this place? this guy we just met. Like, this guy who you've met for maybe, you've known for maybe a month. Maybe a month. Who does nothing in the middle yep. hour of the film. But somehow, you have that emotional connection to him that when he throws you your father's rosary and says, remember, your dad gave you a choice. You're like, oh, fucking yeah. Like, I don't know. It, Liz is... I like her character. I, Selma Blair, I think, does a really good job as Liz in this one and also in the yeah. sequel. And Liz is so much cooler in the sequel to me. Um, even then, her autonomy isn't super... All Like, her choices aren't entirely her choices. She has to... She's kind of put into really shitty situations, but not as bad as in the first one. But, like, this one, man... She's complicated, and I really like that. Like, this emotional aspect of her, she's trying to get this under control, but she just can't. But then they just sort of use the character, and they slip into these tired tropes that I find really exhausting. I don't know. She's kind of, like, that's the part of the, the movie that I'm not super into, but also, I, I can't stop looking at it and, like, picking at that part, you know, like a scab mm -hmm. or something. Like, oh, Liz, treat her better. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean... In a way, you could really give a lot of uh, the roles that Myers had to Liz and get like a better relationship there, like split Myers up between Liz and Abe. And I think that's a problem, sort of adding a fourth person to this three-person, well, four-person relationship. And like Myers, he just ends up taking roles from people who would make more sense if they were in charge. You have yeah. Myers is, I guess, there to be the audience surrogate to introduce us to this weird world, but it doesn't really think it doesn't really feel like it needs that much explaining because no, everything works visually. Everything works really great. Is really there are lots of great visual cues to get you the idea this is a world of mythology and modernity combined. It's a world that's like the world we live in, but there's something underneath it. Um, and the science and magic work together yeah. in many situations. I want to talk about that a little bit later too. Is that's one of my favorite parts of the movie? Uh, but it Myers needs to have maybe two or three things explained to him in the first ten minutes of the movie, and that's all the info dump things that we get out of him. And for the rest of the movie, he's mostly like, "Well, we got to find something for this guy to do. 
I guess he takes yeah. Liz out for coffee. Uh, and then gets thrown at him. Yeah, he gets yeah. something thrown at his head. and, and He's the weakest part of the film, for sure. He's the lot, weakest yeah. part of the film. I have a this... feeling that if this movie had been made like a year or two later, he would have not been in that movie. I think yes. it was sort of a... The studio wanted an audience surrogate for this weird world, and like since then, we've gotten a lot more used to really weird comic universes. I mean, even Constantine... Mm-hmm. Well, no, they had the introductory lady who ends up having horrible stuff happen to her. But, uh, like, it's something where I guess we've become more trusting with these types of movies. And, I mean, we're getting Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the <laughs> yeah. Galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty weird. Yeah. Ten years later and we're getting Guardians, which is... We won't have any viewpoint characters in that one, you know? We'll have we'll have Peter Quill, who is not that much of a viewpoint character. His life is completely different from most of our lives, so everyone I don't know. Else. I'm a famous space outlaw. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> okay, speaking of plucky comic relief, Jeffrey Tambor as Jeffrey Tambor as Tom yeah, Henning it- as Jeffrey Tambor. The He's great. Of the movie. The FBI sort of... Um, lovable slash hateable authority oh he's completely hateable is yeah. is played by jeffrey tambor his character's name is not important um he is i think the perfect um the perfect mix between bumbling idiot and stern dad like he's i an see asshole, i i but- I don't think of him as a stern dad at all. I I really don't like him. Um, that that scene in right after he uh, right after Hellboy, Abe, and three FBI agents, two of which die, one of which is a close friend of Hellboy and is implied to have died or to be in really serious conditions. Um, they go and they they it's right after they take out Samuel and Abe gets injured. Um, and Hellboy is standing there looking at Abe, who's in a tank, and he's unconscious, and he's being fixed, and they're back at the FBI place. And uh, Jeffrey Tambor's character is just sort of tearing Hellboy down for doing a shitty job of protecting his teammates, which he did. It's completely true. Hellboy ran off and did his own thing, and it's he wasn't there to protect the people he was supposed to be leading. And uh, Hellboy says... He says, uh, uh, I knew these men better than you did. And Jeffrey Tambor says, like, in the best tone of voice, I think he did this amazing choice, where he's like, oh, that makes it better then. And, like, immediately you're like, oh, fuck you, Jeffrey Tambor, that does not make it better. But, like, he plays such a dislikable person, you know? But his character is really complicated, too, in the sense that he's really kind of constantly grabbing at the fact, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, even though Hellboy keeps taking that leadership position and and stepping up. He has no real power in this world. This is a world yeah. of gods and monsters, and he's just a weird, bald man. Who goes on late-night talk shows to disprove Hellboy. Can you imagine if the director of the FBI went on Conan or something? <laughs> right. What is the situation where that... I guess it's supposed to be more like Larry King Live or something, but it looked like he was addressing a live audience. It had kind of a... We see a clip in the beginning of the movie uh, because... In the world of this film, there are Hellboy comics, and there's the urban legend of Hellboy that the government has to continue to try and quell. Um, and we see a clip of Jeffrey Tambor's character addressing the television audience and saying there's no such thing as Hellboy or any government agency that deals with the paranormal. And then, of course, we imme- immediately Gilligan cut to the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense. Which but, is disguised as a sanitation company, which I love. In Newark, New Jersey, everybody. Yes, yes. It's so good. It's so good. It, it, like, And you'd think the best way to hide Hellboy would be to not acknowledge this urban legend or like, oh, the comics, or to go on screen and be like, that blurry picture is just a blurry picture of a cat or whatever he says. But like, I think that speaks to... This is a Guillermo del Toro film, and so things are going to be a little goofy. Like, there's going to be, like, this weird humor to it, and I think that's supposed to be part of it, is that, like, an actual representative of the FBI, like a high-level ranking dude, would go on to Conan and be like, there's no such thing as Hellboy, that's not a picture of Hellboy, that's a picture of a cloud, you know? So, yeah, it, it sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't work, that sort of, like, goofy humor, but I think that's supposed to be part of it. It's, it's it's establishing the universe that they have there, which yeah. I think you can put behind it, and then it's like second movie, they're like, uh, that doesn't matter. 
Yeah. Oh, like, the first 20 minutes of the second movie, he, like, jumps out of, like, times it perfectly to fall out of a window in front of a whole bunch of people in news cameras. Yes. Hey. <laughs> Hellboy's like, surprise, <laughs> I'm real. And it's, oh, so good. Next week, we'll just record a Hellboy 2's podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is turning into a Hellboy 2 cut podcast right now. <laughs> the, the villain of this film is as mentioned earlier, um, fictional version of actual dude, uh, Grigory Rasputin, played by Carol Roden. Who's and- wonderfully creepy in it. He really plays that character so well, so gently. Like, he does things very gently. Whenever he touches somebody, like, he never does it, like, in violence. He was just very carefully, like, when he when he touches um, Liz on the head to make her go all fiery, and when he touches... Uh, Dr. Broom on the head to, like, show him the future that he's imagining that Hellboy take over. Everything he does is really soft. Which I thought was like, it's so creepy! Ah, oh, it's so creepy! It, it, it's much better than being, like, him big and there and yelling all the time. He rarely speaks yeah. at a tone lo- louder than, like, a low, a low growl. And he never runs or does anything quickly. Like, he's really just spooky. He appears out of the shadows. He wears his cool shades and he kind of looks like Cypher from The Matrix. He does, yeah. With a beard, he's yeah. really interesting, and I, I love. He's the key to I think one of my favorite things about the movie, which is the way that it combines all of like elements of all of these different mythologies, from like ancient sort of mythology is about demons and angels to nineteenth century and twentieth century things like like Gregory Rasputin or. Hitler and the occult and his occult obsession and legends about about those connections right up to things like right mixed together with um with sort of superhero mythology type things yeah that was like what blew me away when I first saw the movie it's like all these really cool things coming together and I didn't know that they existed together like this yeah they're stitched together so well like uh Guillermo del Toro like blows me away by the way that he world builds right and so, it, you know, everything feels very, like, everything's so different. Like, this idea that, you know, Hitler hires Rasputin. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, you know, but, like, everything's so believable. It's just sort of, like, done through uh, sort of, like, set dressing. And, and it just, it's, it, it ends up mixing well, which is surprising. Like, these different ideas, they shouldn't, they shouldn't mix this well, but they do somehow. Trying to make that all work believably within a, an acceptable tone, this could have been a, a Van Helsing-like disaster, and instead, it is a, a real, a real treat. Like it really, everything meshes together, and it's it's just fantastic. Are, are you dissing Van Helsing the movie? Yes. <laughs> that was another one of those movies that came out in that year that I saw. Yeah. I've got a really stupid emotional connection to that movie. I'll tell you what, that movie ruined Prisoner of Azkaban for me, because after you see the badass, gigantic werewolves of Van Helsing, Professor Lupin looks pretty wimpy. Right? Oh, I never thought about it like that. But yeah, no, no, Van Helsing, I saw that like three times in theaters, I think. I was like all about it, and it wasn't until later on that I was like, oh, damn, that's actually not a good movie. Speaking of thin but menacing villains, Carl Rupert Cronin, the masked zombie-like ninja... Oh god. A, a Nazi ninja zombie, you guys. And this was before the whole ninja Nazi zombie thing. Apparently that's a thing, I've decided. Does not get visually much cooler when it comes to the muscle for a movie than Cronin yeah. wearing his badass full body. Full and he's effective too. Yes. Unlike unlike a lot of other villains, uh, <coughs> Boba Fett, who look cool but <laughs> die terrible deaths, Cronin is effective and he's scary. He's genuinely scary. You know, he's somehow been kept alive. He doesn't have a heart apparently. He's got like this weird clockwork thing, and his all of his blood is turned to dust. He doesn't have any lids on his eyelids, so he wears this this mask that that looks a lot like a um like a gas mask with the the gas part sort of torn off and and with something there but when he takes that off he's got all these stitches across his face he's eyelidless he doesn't have lips so he's got these like exposed teeth and he's he's genuinely creepy he's well designed and he's a really formidable foe for hellboy it's it's you know you genuinely worry for the good guys when when cronin walks into a room which i think is is a challenge that's that i wouldn't have expected this this movie to meet He's like Voldo from Soul Calibur, mixed with more of a suit. 
<laughs> he moves so well too. Like he's actually played by the movie's fight choreographer. Oh, beautiful! And uh, his name is Ladislav uh, Baron. I'm sorry, I'm slaughtering the pronunciation. But he, and it it shows that this guy is like I initially thought it might have been Doug Jones again because his mime his mime work and his his space work and everything his movements are also deliberate and full of character that I thought I was I thought actually that it was just Doug Jones master mime again because the two of them are never on screen together so it wouldn't be difficult to do, uh, but. Instead, you have apparently like this this master another another form of body movement mastery in the martial arts, and it's yeah, they've got these um like these uh I don't know what I don't know what those I wish I I should have looked up what the weapons are called, but they're like uh they're like police billy clubs, but instead of the club part, they're knives. Oh fuck! I can't uh, remember what they're uh, called either. What are they called, Luke? Tanfa. Tanfa. Oh my gosh! Th- you, that's Luke. their name. They have a name. Tanfa. Yeah. T o n f a. Yeah, so they're held, somewhere. like, really close and backwards, kind of, like, to your head. And, like, it's really acrobatic and kind of beautiful the way that he moves with them. It's very graceful. And you never see his face, so it very well could have been Doug Jones doing that. Because, you know, you don't see Doug Jones' face with Ape Sapien either. It's so much makeup covering him. But he's usually wearing his mask, and he never speaks. Um, so it very well could have been. But that it's very cool that it's the fight choreographer, because his fights are awesome they're so much fun to watch and scary too but fun he keeps the action very visually interesting and he's very ominous i like that when he's walking down the there is a plot development again i I, if you're listening to this you've probably seen the film but there is a plot development where um where um cronin pretends to be dead so that they bring him back to the base and then he just wakes up winds himself back up and walks down the stairs where broom is working and as soon as broom sees that cronin is there he's like Basically, he's like, "Well, I'm gonna die." And yeah, and he'd been performing work. an autopsy on Broom, or he'd been, Broom had been per- performing an autopsy on Cronin a few minutes before, and this was all like a plan for Rasputin to get into the building and kill Broom. And he's just like, "Well, he never loses his cool. He always stays John Hurt." But it's like, "Well, this is it." I'm not gonna. What am I gonna fight, Cronin? <laughs> no. And well, Hellboy's out because he's following Liz and Myers on their stupid date. Ah, Myers, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. Everything's Myers' fault. Anything bad about this movie, we can play squarely in the hands of John Myers. Good. Yes. Good. Myers is who this movie, like all the boring stuff, was put in there for, for the yes. John Myerses of the world. Oh, he's the worst. So that's Myers. the cast. That's the characters. I think, though, that as much as they are the stars of this film, the production design of this movie is maybe the coolest thing about it. Yes. 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 It's visually gorgeous. You know, there's tons of detail in every scene and everywhere that you go. There's, like, clockwork everything because, you know, why not? It looks <laughs> great. Um Yo- yeah, it, it's a really beautiful movie. It's it's just really well designed. The costumes are well designed. Even like one-off characters. Um, in the very beginning, we're on this island where there's this uh, cathedral, like ruins of a monastery, basically, and that's where the Nazis are performing this thing with the Rasputin to try to open the portal and kill everybody. I, yeah, whatever. Um, but like the design of like the the SS officers, like they're they're unique. There's not just like, but then the the minor SS soldiers, they're all in like these like head-to-toe jumpsuits that are, like, all white, and they've got these big goggles on, and they look simultaneously really, really neat, but also very comic booky. So, like, everything's everything's well-designed. Everything is. It's just, it's gorgeous. Apart from the FBI guys, every character, however small and seemingly insignificant that character is, has, like, a very distinctive look to them. It's even, even if you only, like, I really like the example you used of that uh, German officer in the beginning, who's got, like, the sunglasses and the like, hats. And, yeah, he's, like, no one else... He's the in guy the... in charge, and you know he's in charge, even though you never learn his name, and he's dead by the end of the scene. <laughs> but you get all of that from, the like, the one shot you see him. It's, like, this guy has got Bad such news. a specific character, and now he's dead. And the amount... They didn't have to put the kind of work in there. They could have just had him put on a stock costume from an Indiana Jones movie. And instead, they really made him his own character for the three seconds that he matters. black and silver. Yeah. He's wearing black and silver, and that's, like, it. Like, with, like, splotches... Like, with, like, accents of red. But, like... Yeah, so it looks very traditional Nazi uniform, but at the same time, uh, it's unique to this to this world, you know? And at the same time, I like a lot of the actors... Who they use for these X roles because they added in 
like a lot of character to the people who they chose. Like in the picture that they have with the young Hellboy and the soldiers who found him, like everyone there has a very distinctive look. Yes. Like look like Mignola character designs. Yes. The yes. um the, the yeah, the soldiers in the beginning each are very distinctive as well. There's the, the guy American that, soldiers we mean now, not the not yeah, the, the, book, the Nazis yeah. too, but also yeah. the Americans. They look yeah. Yeah, like you have the guy with the camera who looks kind of like a like a like maybe like a Jimmy Olsen Bucky Barnes type of like wearing glasses. He yeah. looks sort of young, but he's he's a little bit big. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's he's like, very scared. He's with he's with Broom when they find Hellboy and he initially shoots at him. Yeah. And in the modern day, uh, even commonplace things, Christina was pointing out when we were watching the film that even commonplace type things or things that already like they've been designed, you don't have to redesign it like a retinal scanner. It has to like telescope yeah. and have moving parts and be brass and awesome. There are parts, there are things like that, like you're very clearly hooked into um, like a digital system, like when the. When uh, this is when uh, Myers is initially going into BPRD, he comes up to these gates that says sanitation or whatever, and he speaks to a monitor, and it sort of like drops down, and it becomes like a TV screen or I guess a computer screen, and it's very obviously digital. But then the retina scanner comes up, and it's got two moving parts that are flash bulbs that flash when they take a picture of his eye. So like it doesn't, it didn't need to have those moving parts. It didn't need to be semi-analog but it is because it looks cooler <laughs> which i love about this movie yes i love uh del toro stuff like the study where they have everything yeah. i've looked through that big book of del toro art and like it has pictures of his houses and it's like i could see him living in that library man i the- would live in that library <laughs> that library is beautiful with the spiral staircase oh <laughs> You know that, and I guess you have the art book, so you really do know, but we were commenting that however much detail you see in the movie, you know that there is so much stuff that you never actually get to see in the film that meticulous amounts of detail were put into because that's just his style. Um, the, the art book for Pacific Rim shows so much detail into like the biology of every monster and like how each city that's been affected by giant monsters has reacted to it, and, like, the whole world is different. And even though this is not as fantastic or un- otherworldly a universe as Pacific Rim, there, you, you, that, I wouldn't be surprised if they put specific names on all the books in the library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is that art book like, Luke? I've always imagined that it's super cool, but what is, what is it like? Uh, I've actually just seen it at uh, Barnes & Noble's, and I've given myself time to flip through that before movies uh but it's like a one of those 10 pound huge oh, knock off someone's head with oh my gosh and it's like a lot of uh mixtures of like heavy text uh like pictures from his actual sketchbooks uh production art that he had made and then like uh discussions with other people who worked with him or who are fans of him so like ron perlman has a section and it's oh. like broken down movie by movie it's definitely worth looking at, even if you've got, like, just 30 minutes. But it's on my list of things to get sometime. Yeah, I've got a list like that, too. It just keeps growing, and I think I'm going to add it. I add this book to it, because, yeah, that, no, that, that library is gorgeous. It's got, like, um, these really beautiful, almost Art Deco, uh, like, this, this tank for Abe on one side of it, and then at the back, there's the spiral staircase that, that Cronin comes down at the end, or, you know, in the middle when, when uh, Broom gets killed. But there's also books everywhere, and there's this gigantic statue of this uh, stone angel stabbing a demon with a spear, and it's just, like, it's huge. And, yeah, that there's so many, and there are, like, books everywhere, just all along the walls and, like, on pedestals everywhere and sort of stacked places and pieces of parchment and, like, maps everywhere. And it's, yeah, it's it's very well detailed. And in the second movie, they actually spend a good amount of time in that library. It looks kind of, it looks a little bit different, but it's it's the same amount of detail goes into it. And then they, like, put even more, like, they get so much more stuff to play with in the second movie. We need to yeah. get that second movie reviewed sometime. In due time. The second, yeah, the set design in the second movie, are there, it's as good. Oh my gosh, it's, the fairy market? Oh boy. Oh boy. Del Toro gets so much more room in that. Yeah. And here, it's, like, weird, because he had made Blade 2 before this. And yes. 
in a lot of ways, the world that he had set up there felt a lot more true in some ways, and it did... No, it's more the story felt more Del Toro-esque than it did here, because I don't think Del Toro would have chosen to put Myers in the movie in a lot of ways. Yes, yeah. I would agree with you on that. It feels very, that feels like, like Dylan was saying, that sounds very much like um, like studio pressure, almost, that we need a viewpoint character. And really, Myers doesn't do anything. He just sort of stands there, makes puppy dog eyes at Liz Sherman, and is like this, just this dude that's sort of like there to put pressure on Hellboy, but it's sort of fake pressure. It's not really real. It's He doesn't do anything. He's yeah. useless. Myers. He, he takes up time and... yeah. Precious time that we could be spending with Hellboy and Abe understanding their world better. Like, he almost takes away from understanding their job and, like, what they do and what they've been doing and their history together, which is too bad. One of the things that's a theme in this movie that I think is really excellent that we've touched on a little bit earlier is the way that the movie uses science and magic together. Rather than being, like, a science versus magic story, it's sort of like the BPRD employs magic like it's a science. Like, there's this semi-L demon in the film who plants some eggs in Hellboy, right? And Abe looks under, looks at it under a microscope and talks about how it gestates and things like that. Obviously, it does that using magic. I mean, it, it, it expands from a tiny egg to a seven-foot creature in a matter of seconds, but he's still doing the science? I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that and um, and previously, uh, uh, Abe had grabbed a sword and had a vision of what had happened. Like, so Abe is capable of doing both of these things. You know, mm-hmm. he's both a scientist and he has also got these weird, like, magical elements to him. Hellboy has special bullets made for his awesome, gigantic gun, the Samaritan, and he doesn't know when he goes into the field what he might be facing. So he has these bullets made that have quote, the woiks in them. There's holy war- water, uh, there's garlic in case it's like a vampire, there's flakes of silver in case it's a werewolf, and I, uh, I think white oak, which I'm, I forget what that one is all about. Is that a I have no thing, idea maybe? what white oak is for, yeah. But that's cool. It's like, well, if you were gonna go and fight, you don't know what kind of evil. What would you do? Well, prepare for everything. <laughs> yeah, and I love that too. I love a world where they have been doing this so long that they know what they need to have out there. Yeah. Yeah, we're not we're not watching the BPRD as it's formed. This is what, sixty years later, that's what they say in the movies. It's sixty yeah. years after the BP, after Hellboys come through. They've been doing this a while. They're good at it. Yeah. Which is which is interesting because it sort of like adds another layer that, you know, this is this is a mystery that they could have solved, or maybe maybe this is what Jeffrey Tambor's character is so upset about, is that they, they should have solved this quickly, because maybe everything else they've solved very quickly in this universe, and this is the thing that they haven't, and that's why we're being told this story right now. This is the time they fuck up. Yeah. I also think it's really interesting the way they play with mythology and belief in this movie. Um, like a lot of American supernatural fiction, it's sort of plays with like vaguely with with christianity and stuff where um clearly there are angels and there are demons and um probably you know and there there, there are gods rather than just one god like maybe like the judeo-christian god is referred to by rasputin as staying as choosing to remain silent and rasputin has his own gods like the old ones the sort of Mystic, uh, the sort of like space gods of uh, the Lovecraftian horrors. Um, the Ugdru Jihad. Yes. Yes. They're a weird name. Very Lovecraftian in the in that the name's very hard to pronounce. <laughs> I like that. Um, there seems to be a power that they employ related to faith to a degree. Um, Hellboy hangs on to his. Um, to his uh, his father's rosary for a while, and that when he becomes when he manifests into like a full demon, and Myers throws him that rosary, it burns him. Yeah, and it leaves an imprint of a a burning like a like a it burns him. It, it burns, burns a cross into his, his hand. hand. Yeah, I've read a uh, a good amount of of Hellboy comics, and I'm I'm currently caught up on Hellboy and Hell, which is what's happening in the comic series right now. 
But uh, Luke, have you you've read more than me probably? Um, is this plot based on uh, on a Magnola plot from the from uh, the comics? It's loosely based on Seeds of Destruction, which is one of those earlier ones. So I thought, okay, because I've read Seeds of Destruction, and, and there are elements to it from it that are in this movie, but this movie feels like weirdly complete, like more complete than some Hellboy stories are. Like sometimes Hellboy stories will just end. Like he's yeah, they, he's defeated it and it's done. Yeah, this. I mean, I don't think if they were doing like the full Hellboy type stories, it would have worked as well if they were setting it up for like further stuff. Because I mean, I know what you're saying. There have been like some of the arcs where it's like, oh, I finished this and people are still missing. I don't mm-hmm. know if they actually learned anything. Yeah, there's very little resolution to Hellboy comics, uh, or, or quote-unquote lessons learned, I guess. It's, yeah. you know, it's it's sad sometimes. Things just, they're not solved. Things are just not solved. Or, or Hellboy misses something important that he should have noticed, and that he didn't notice, and we noticed it, but he hasn't, and the story ends anyways, and we move on. And that makes it, like, such the weird but kind of fantastic series that it is. So yes. I'm personally like a year behind. Last year I did a heavy read through library borrowing and but yeah, I mean I love the series and like a lot of the places where it goes and it was uh Lobster Johnson that got me into reading comics, so I've never read any of the Lobster Johnson, but um uh the current Ape Sapien title is is great. Um it it's nothing at all like the the movie if you're gonna check it out dear listeners, but, um, it's, Abe is, is wonderful, and, like, where his character is gone is really interesting, um, and the current BPRD book is also, it's completely different, it's, it's, like, it's literally a, apocalypse time in their world, in, in BPRD, and they, they're struggling to solve it, but it's brilliant, it's fantastic, um, but, yeah. and Hellboy's nowhere around, because he's in hell. Yeah, BPRD is one of those few comic series that actually makes me feel unease with, like, the apocalypse yes. and how they're doing it because the destruction is just so believably impossible to think about, I guess. It's so vast. It's huge. Yeah. Like the entire world is basically being torn apart. These huge monsters are appearing out of nowhere in various cities all over the world. The military in the U S is, is strapped thin. There's really no connection to other countries anymore. And BPRD, the, the, you know, they're they're trying to take these things down, but they don't have the manpower anymore because so many of their people keep getting killed. And Abe is missing. Abe leaves basically because he's got to try to figure out if he's connected to what's happening to the world. Um, Hellboy's dead, uh, sort of. He's in hell. He can't really die because yeah. he's a demon, but he's in hell right now. Um, so he's not able to help them, and they're sort of failing. Everything that they do is sort of failing right now, and it's it's a. Uh, it's a not a super bleak book, but the the monsters are very scary. They're very effective. Like that's the thing I think that's carried over from the comics to the the to the movie really well is that the design of these monsters are very unique. I think I think that well not very unique, whatever, but they're unique. They're original. They're scary. You can tell the world they belong in. I think it's yeah. excellent that even though in the scenes where you can see them very, we can see them very well. Um, I'm thrilled that they have a practical suit effect for Samael the Hellhound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm really happy with how little they relied on CGI in this film. I am so happy that the only CGI part of Hellboy is his tail. And even then, sometimes, um, if I remember correctly, because when I, when I first watched this movie, I, I caught all of the, like, I made my mom buy me the DVD, basically, and so I watched all the uh, special features. Um... But I think parts of it, I think the the tale is sometimes real. It's sometimes actually part of it. Part of him, rather. And, like, the Abe Sapien's costume is, that's makeup. 100%, it's like, yeah, it's great. The practical yeah. effects here really elevate it in every scene except for when Hellboy and Samael are fighting in the train station. There's way too much fluorescent light, and it's not kind to the costume. But other than that, I mean, they avoid using CG whenever possible. It's such such an excellent choice, and I wish that that was something that was done more in newer superhero movies. Especially because yep. the CG that they do use, sometimes it, it hasn't aged very well. It, like, you can definitely it, tell when they switch. I'm sorry, go ahead, Luke. Oh, in here, like, the costume still looks fantastic, and, I mean, 
like the costume work here, the makeup and everything, it just works so much more than if you had just tried to toss CGI into it. And I mean, it's oh, yeah. something you can see in real life, which is even better. Yeah, it grounds you in that world rather than having, you know, Hellboy's makeup, you know, or whatever mask digitally. It, it the physicalness of it, like the physicality of the actual horns right there, and like. Ron Perlman just having to wear stilts in the boots to make him just that much taller. I mean, it's it grounds you there. You can actually imagine the physicality of Hellboy rather than it just being a CGI person. Okay, well, I think that we're maybe ready to start winding down. Did, did either of you have other stray thoughts, other things you'd like to talk about before we wrap up today? If I ever saw a red ape in a graveyard, I would not try and shoot it. That's the lesson I learned. <laughs> Always I think that would be the best best idea. Always feed the weird monster a candy bar. It will save the world at some point if you do that. Mm-hmm. Baby Ruth, too, specifically. Baby Ruth bars. Save it will save the world. the world. Yeah. Oh, And I did not previously know that Del Toro voiced Ivan, the talking corpse. <gasps> ah, I didn't know yeah, that. Really? Oh, I had no idea. Oh, that's so funny. That's great. He's that's like another moment that that's really uh, Ivan the Talking Corpse is is kind of a smart mouth. <laughs> yes. it's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> I haven't seen this film in a in a really long time, and I'm I'm glad that I sat down and rewatched it because it's got such like it's it's got such a soft spot in my I've got such a soft spot in my heart for it because it's Hellboy is really what pulled me back into comics after spending some time away from reading and. And collecting, and and this movie was really one of the things that jump started it because I just wanted more. I wanted more about this character, and I was so happy to find that uh, his snarkiness and his sort of brutality is intact in the comics. Like it's a very, it's a very good adaptation, I think, in terms of the character. So I don't know. I, I love this. It's it's got its flaws, Myers mostly, <laughs> um, but I, I adore this movie. Mm-hmm. Luke, last thoughts about your? How do you feel about the movie? Uh, parts of it don't hold up as well just because of how old the movie is and partially because of Myers. Yes. But, I mean, I still love the movie, and while my emotions have sort of changed after reading the comic and everything else, I still really enjoy the movie. I think it's still really strong in a lot of ways, if for no other reason than having a heavy directorial influence and feeling like a movie that a lot of it was made as a labor of love instead of just, yes. hey, we bought these rights, let's get that movie made. And, uh, yeah. And Guillermo del Toro, man, he's the perfect person to mm-hmm. adapt Hellboy. Absolutely. Yes. And we'll be doing, before, um, you know, it'll be a little bit, but we will be doing two more, at least, Guillermo del Toro movies in this podcast, uh, Blade 2 and Hellboy 2. And we get the opportunity to take a look at what makes them similar to one another. Next week, however, we'll be taking a look at Marvel Studios' first movie for its big cinematic universe, Iron Man. That's going to be a very exciting episode. Uh, so I hope that all of you listening will will join me with two fresh guests next week for Iron Man. Um, for now, I'd like to thank Christina and Luke for joining me on Supers on Screen. Yay! Thank you for having us. Hey, Christina, where can our listeners find more content from you on the internet? Uh, you can find me over at deadshirt.net. I occasionally contribute to the uh, comics, movies, TV sort of genres over there. And Luke, where do you reside on the web? Uh, sometimes I post things to Deadshirt, though it's been a while. I should probably toss something else up there. You can also find me occasionally at Nerd Scenarios, uh, though mostly I am on Twitter, uh, which is at Coltreg, K-O-L-T-R-E-G. And there I've been uh, posting notes as I work on my next big comic project, Super Slasher. This has been a delight. It was a great. It was great fun rewatching this movie. Uh, I liked it better, I think, this time than I've ever liked it, and I already liked it a lot. So, thank you for sharing that experience. Thank you for all of your for your thoughts, and thank you, listeners, for listening to us talk about it. And uh, I hope this has been entertaining for you. We'll see you or me and two other guests. We'll see you next week for Iron Man. Uh, We will not have a super long hiatus this time between episodes. Scout's honor. I will... uh, Thanks for listening, and I'll, I'll see you next week.
Supers on Screen is produced by Dylan Roth for Deadshirt.net. Visit Deadshirt.net for reviews and commentary on comics, movies, TV, music, and more. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Deadshirt.net. That's D-E-A-D-S-H-I-R-T-D-O-T-N-E-T. You can find me, Dylan Roth, on Twitter at D-Y-L-A-N-R-O-T-H. Our theme music is Become the Night by Big Damn Heroes. Deadshirt.net. Consider everything.